Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to uh, another edition of our Choose Inclusion special edition of Black Voices Matter. Uh, I am, uh, of course, joined by my amazing two co-hosts, Ubaldo and Nina. Say welcome, guys. Hey, everyone. Hey there. Welcome back. Awesome. And uh, just a little backstory on our special guest today, Mr. Bruce Carter. I actually was hit up on LinkedIn from a, uh, a member of Church Mutual's uh, sales team who was uh, looking at nonprofits in the Denver market and uh, reached out to me on LinkedIn. And I was, uh, you know, I, I always try to respond back. And I said, sure, I'll talk for five minutes. And uh, we got to talking about uh, Church Mutual and the history of the organization. And uh, and I said, you know what, I just renewed our insurance. However, uh, I am absolutely uh, interested in, in organizations such as yours that are also that share the uh, the mission, uh, you know, always about mission and that sort of thing. And so uh, he then asked about what BIT does. And he goes, you know what, I, I know that our uh, head of diversity and inclusion at Church Mutual would want to talk to you. And and I kind of chuckled. And I'm like, I'm not sure, make an introduction. You know, uh, I'm sure salespeople have the influence to have, you know, heads of D&I reach out to another nonprofit. However, uh, that just speaks to the incredible organization that Church Mutual is, because sure enough, not only was the introduction made, but then I got to meet uh, Mr. Bruce Carter uh, over a phone call uh, just just days after that introduction. So which screams also of the commitment to diversity and inclusion that the entire organization and uh, the integrity that uh, Mr. Bruce Carter has. So. Without further ado, I would love to introduce uh, Mr. Bruce Carter to uh, to the show. Good afternoon, and thank you so much uh, for the introduction. And certainly, it is a pleasure to have a chance to engage in the dialogue uh, with you and your listeners. Uh, I thought I'd start off uh, telling you a little bit about myself. Uh, currently, I'm the Director of Diversity and Inclusion for Church Mutual Insurance Company. And Church Mutual Insurance Company is the largest insurer of faith-based organizations in the United States, more than 100 years old, started out uh, in response to the inability of Lutheran ministers to get insurance in central Wisconsin and has grown to about a billion dollar company today. And we also insure uh, senior living facilities, schools, uh, campgrounds, um, and other nonprofits, including those in the human services area, as part of our diversification of our superior insurance products being a match. Um, I'm originally from Shreveport, Louisiana, Air Force brat. Um, started school in uh, Tucson, Arizona. And uh, three things about uh, uh, Tucson, Arizona. Uh, one, my first best friend, and he happened to be Caucasian, I'm African American. Uh, second, the first time and only time I was bit by a dog. And the third time uh, when I realized there was a difference. So Warren, that was his name. I don't remember his last name, but he and I would walk to school every day. And one particular day we were walking and a dog attacked us. We both were bit. Um, but 
getting to my first recollection of, of race. Um, Warren had a birthday party and we were in class and all the kids had an invitation uh, to his birthday party. I did not have one, but Warren said I could go to the party anyway. Uh, so I ran home and told mom that Warren was having a birthday party and I was invited. Of course, mom said, where's your invitation? I said, well, Warren said I didn't need one. And uh, she explained to me I couldn't go. I had a fit. You know, Warren's my best friend. All the other kids are going. What does an invitation have to do with it? After all, Warren invited me. Well, she had to explain to me that one, when you don't have an invitation, you don't go. And second, I didn't understand. And she had to tell me that sometimes I'm not going to be invited to do things because of my, my skin color. I have a very vague uh, recollection of being a little guy in Shreveport, Louisiana. Of uh, I call it the dirty water story. Um, whenever we left, and at the time I didn't know it was race uh, focused and designed to help protect me, we were always told before we left home to go to the restroom and to drink water. Because in that time frame, uh, restrooms and water fountains were segregated. Well, being a little three or four year old guy, sometimes even after drinking water, you'd be downtown and it was hot, you'd want something to drink. And I do remember dirty water. So because I couldn't read, and if I became thirsty, and there'd be two fountains, the way that mother helped protect me was the one that said whites on top of the fountain, uh, she referred to as dirty water. Now, I didn't understand why one fountain had dirty water and one had okay water to drink. But at the time, I didn't realize it. But later on in life, I understood that was one of the quote, coping mechanisms of being a African-American in the segregated South. Uh, so second grade, we moved to Duluth, Minnesota. And I was probably called the N-word uh, so often uh, that it probably could have been my first name. And you know, kids can have an, a time to be uh, brutal. Um, Duluth, Minnesota was a, a great place to grow up. Unfortunately, today is a solemn anniversary. A hundred years ago today, on June 15, 1920, three African-American circus workers were lynched in Duluth, Minnesota. The circus had come to town. A uh, young Caucasian lady's boyfriend uh, said that she had been raped. Uh, six African-American circus workers were taken into custody. Um, 100 years ago today, a mob of about 10,000 people uh, overpowered the police station, took out three of the young men, and they were lynched. Growing up in, in Duluth, uh, there wasn't a lot of talk about that until maybe I was in junior high school. And I had uh, more of an understanding then. And one of the things that I understood kind of fermented and led up to that um, was there was a steel plant, which was a major employer in town. And I guess back in 1919, 1920, uh, U.S. Steel, in its efforts to defeat the Union, uh, upon a strike, they brought in African-Americans as strike breakers. And so tensions had been building. And uh, when the the allegation was made that the circus workers had raped the woman, 
uh, things boiled over and, and unfortunately uh, that's what happened. Also growing up in Minnesota, uh, I thought it was very progressive and liberal. I went to college at the University of Minnesota. I'm a little older than probably many of the people on the call. And at the University of Minnesota, I was vice president of the Black Student Union. The president of the Black Student Union was Stevie Winfield, who was the who is the brother of David Winfield, the uh, Minnesota-born uh, native who went on to become a, a Hall of Famer. So I knew David very well. While at the University of Minnesota, uh, I went there as a history major. And one day we had a discussion with the chairman of the African-American Studies Department. And she told a number of us that one of the ways a university shows its viability is to have graduates. So I had enough credits to declare history as a major or African-American studies. So David Winfield and I changed majors. I changed from history to African-American studies. And I'm not sure what David's uh, major was prior to that. And so that was one of the ways in which uh, we were able to uh, support uh, the university. One of the other things that I thought was unique was at that time we had an African-American female who was on the Board of Regents, really quite different than most universities at that time. And Minnesota was, was liberal uh, and very progressive. Uh, I'm the oldest of six. And having all of these fond memories of, of, of Minnesota, I was uh, shocked and surprised about the brutal murder of George Floyd. And I remember uh, one of my buddies sent me the initial video that was taken by the 17-year-old. And I just said, in Minnesota, nice, Minneapolis. And I called one of my brothers and I said, you know, is it that bad in Minneapolis, St. Paul? And said, yes, uh, especially since 2008 with the downturn in the economy, uh, things seem to deteriorate in terms of, of race relations. I don't remember the, the Minneapolis police having a, a bad reputation when I was there. Uh, when I was there, I lived in St. Paul and the campus was in Minneapolis. Uh, I felt that the relationships with police were worse in St. Paul than Minneapolis, and uh, the two cities are separated by the Mississippi River. So uh, in addition to that, that murder being so brutal, uh, it just reinforced um, brutality and inhumanity and acts of inhumanity can occur anyway. So we know that that's now sparked a wave of, of protests and demonstrations that have not been seen since the height of the civil rights movement. And hopefully the protests will lead to lasting reforms that will help ameliorate the many inequalities and injustices in our country. In the last few weeks, I've also engaged in several emotional conversations with colleagues and friends, and sometimes listening and making a commitment to understanding are the only things you can offer, and that's okay. Of course, I was raised in a, in a Christian home and uh, taught to see character before color. We may not know exactly what to do now, but we should not be deterred. We should continue to communicate and forums like this provide an opportunity where we have an opportunity to learn. 
and we should talk to our family, friends, colleagues in an open and compassionate way. And hopefully that'll help us grow as individuals and then as an organization, including the one that I represent and the organizations that all of you have a relationship with. But most importantly, we should demand better. I also understand that one of the things that is uncomfortable is to talk about race. And as we talk about race, one of the items that we often don't talk about is white privilege. And we know that white privilege refers to societal privilege that benefits white people over non-white people. And it also refers to those preferences help also view the world and sometimes not necessarily the understanding of what non-white persons go through in their daily lives. And then of course, there's the, the concept of white fragility. And it refers to, of course, the feelings of discomfort that a white person experiences when they witness and sometimes have discussions around racial in, inequality and an injustice. Um, and white privilege, again, is, it, it, it just is. Um, another thing that oftentimes people say is they want to be colorblind. And again, that argument is that, you know, race should matter. Uh, for, and in taking that approach, sometimes that prevents us from grappling with how it does, because it means we're ignoring the problem. Color of skin does matter. And how the world interacts with us on the basis of color is real. We've heard terms such as color brave, meaning having candid conversations about race that can help us better understand each other's perspectives and experiences so that we can make better decisions and hopefully secure better prospects for future generations. I'm so proud of our organization. Uh, last week in working with our marketing team, our CEO and President Rich Poirier issued a statement of unity. And in that statement of unity, the company articulated its belief that all people should be treated equally and we stand united with the black community in that unity to make things better. First time that uh, we've said such a statement. And I think uh, our organization and others are also following are re-examining where do we stand in terms of helping make things better. I've heard and I've done a number of calls with members of our organization. And I think that speaks to the sincerity of our employees. Our company is headquartered in uh, central Wisconsin, uh, a city of Merrill, which is east of Wausau. Some of you may be more familiar with Wausau, Wisconsin. And it is predominantly Caucasian. And you'd probably be surprised just how open our employees are in terms of our diversity and inclusion journey. And I will come back to that in a moment. But one of the things that I did want to share, I hear people oftentimes say, well, why do you talk about Black Lives Matter? You know, don't all lives matter? And I think one of the examples that people have shared with me that I think resonates is if you are in a block of homes, 
and the one that's on fire needs the attention, then that's the one you go to. And so it's not meant to be anti anything else, but the black community is going through uh, a very tough time. One of the statistics that the CDC uh, provided recently is that the leading cause of death for all teenagers is accidents for those who are between 12 to 19, except for black males aged 12 to 19. And the primary cause of death for them, while it's accidents for everyone else, is homicide, black on black crime, police shootings, and white vigilantes. One of the discussions I had recently with someone who was really feeling the pain about what's going on, shared a couple of perspectives. And one of it was that Caucasian kids are not killed for playing their music too loud. Caucasian kids are not killed for wearing a hoodie. And that disproportionality and that belief says a lot about how the African-American community is feeling in terms of oftentimes not being heard. Another statement that people have asked me to address is, um, why are things being burned up? And of course, we deplore violence. We deplore police violence, and we deplore uh, violence of those who use as an opportunity for meaningful protests to burn and, and loot. Many African-Americans feel that there's more concern by Caucasians about buildings burning than the loss of life. We as a company, and certainly I as an individual, deplore any type of violence. But again, it speaks to the gap in perceptions and feelings. One of the things that I wanted to share in terms of that, and this is not meant to be political, but if, if we go back to the election of 2016 uh, and the presidential vote, uh, we understand that Caucasians are 70% of the electorate. In that election, 58% of whites voted for Trump. 8% of African-Americans looked at it another way. Eight out of nine, or I mean, almost nine out of 10 African-Americans voted for someone other than Trump. Hispanics, almost seven in 10 at 65% voted for someone other than Trump. Asians, same percentage, seven out of 10 voted for Trump. He says, well, why, what, are you, what are you saying there, Bruce? I think the numbers speak for themselves. We're very divided. And people of color are very uncomfortable with that. So let's take that for a moment. And let's also add to the recent Pew Research Center. They did a piece on race in America, 2019. And one of the findings was that majority of Blacks, 76%, majority of Asians, 76%, and Hispanics, almost 60%, say they've experienced discrimination because of their race or ethnicity. 
In contrast, 67% of Caucasians say they've never experienced it. That's a pretty wide gulf. Uh, that study also took a look at how whites and blacks differ widely in their views of how blacks are treated. So if we take a look at less fairly, dealing with police, whites indicated 63%, blacks 84%. Treated less fairly in the criminal justice system, 61% of whites, 87% of blacks. From where we are, the workplace, in hiring, pay, and promotions, whites felt 44% and blacks 82%, almost double. Again, talking about the, the wide gulf in terms of, of how we review. Um, the Center for Talent Innovation, being black in corporate America, did an intersectional exploration. And here's one that I think is probably surprising and especially for where our company is headquartered in the Midwest. They took a look at black professionals and they're experiencing racial prejudice at work by US region. It's probably a surprise many of you, the region that black professionals felt they experienced more prejudice was the Midwest. The Minnesota, Wisconsin, Iowa, Michigan part of the country. The second area was West, 66%. South, 56% and Northeast, 44%. So if we begin there, corporations and the workplace are just a microcosm of our population and our society. So we have work to do. Part of what I wanna to share today is that we should not try to compartmentalize and make judgments based on the lens that we're looking at things through, but rather focus on positive intent and suspend judgment. Because a person votes one way doesn't make them a racist or how they choose to worship. I'm reminded of Benjamin Mays, who was the president of Morehouse University when Dr. King was a student at Morehouse. And as we know, Morehouse is the only four-year college for African-Americans in the United States. Dr. Benjamin Mays coined the phrase that 11 o'clock Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America. Caucasians go to Caucasian churches, African-Americans go to African-American churches, and there's some um, difference and some of them do have uh, mixed congregations. And the point is that everyone should worship uh, where they feel comfortable worshiping. And I support that, except unless it's uh, preaching supremacy or hate. And because where one chooses to worship does not um, categorize them as being a racist. So we oftentimes have to check ourselves when we think in terms of because of the ethnicity of a group or an event or organization that it is racist if it doesn't have a number of people from other organizations. 
Now, certainly we know in terms of church them and other organizations, there was a period of time when legal segregation and segregation by custom did result in separateness in schools, churches, other institutions as a way of life. But I think we make a mistake when we go into corners and try to categorize or stereotype people based on where they choose to worship or where they choose to, to work. Um, so those were some of my thoughts in terms of some of the discussions uh, about what we've been having, the mass uh, demonstrations and, and protests. And one of the things that certainly seems different this time is the uh, multi-ethic and multi-generational um, approach to the protest. And hopefully uh, positive things and change will, will come out of that. I joined uh, Church Mutual uh, about a year and a half ago. And one of the first things that the CEO asked me to do was to put together a five-year diversity and inclusion strategy. And as part of that, uh, he wanted to make sure that we had tangible metrics uh, to measure our success. As an organization, we came up with five strategic areas. The first strategic area was building organizational competence. And as part of that, we wanted to have dialogue, uh, train our employees regarding diversity and inclusion, accepting acceptance of others. And one of the things that we're excited about now is our officer group beginning next month, we're gonna have courageous conversations about race as a group. So a key part of the foundation of diversity and inclusion is one being clear about what diversity is and the other about inclusion. America's always been diverse. It's been the inclusivity that we have sometimes struggled with. So if we begin uh, talking about diversity and inclusion, it's probably helpful to start with a definition of diversity and inclusion. So as we know, diversity means all the ways we differ and some of the differences we're born with and cannot change. And anything that makes us unique is part of the definition of diversity. Inclusion, on the other hand, involves bringing together and harnessing these diverse forces and resources in a way that's beneficial and puts the concept of diversity in action by creating an environment of involvement, respect, and connection where the richness of ideas, backgrounds, and perspectives are really harnessed to create business value and organizations need both diversity and inclusion to be successful. Our first strategic area as a company is building organizational competency. Last year for the first time, we did a survey around diversity and inclusion to establish a starting point for us to measure our success over the next five years. The second area was we wanted diverse representation. And when we took a look at our workforce, we don't look the way we'd like to look in terms of being more representative at all levels of people of color, women, veterans, those who are differently able, and the LGBT community. So we've set goals around where we want to focus our efforts. As part of that, we introduced a diverse candidate slate policy, which basically says for any management or sales position, we will have a diverse candidate slate 
And our goal is at least 80% of the positions that we fill, we've developed a diverse candidate slate. As some people have asked me, so, well, you know, if I have a qualified uh, minority and I have a qualified uh, non-minority, who do, I, do I, who do I choose? And I just basically say yes. The other part of that is we targeted also our professional class because that's a feeder pool into management positions. So we've set goals to more accurately reflect the labor market throughout the United States over the next five years. So we have measurable goals every year for the next five years for those key categories. Our third area is marketing. And we're glad that we partner with our chief marketing officer and his staff to look at additional market opportunities and areas where we can uh, provide better coverages for underserved and other representative groups, as well as focus on building long lasting relationships. So we want more people of color salespeople, more female salespeople. And that basically says that that's gonna resonate, but we don't support only sending African-American sales people to African-American churches, for example, or Caucasians to Caucasian churches or Latinx people to Latinx organizations. What we want to do is to be more representative. And if a, we have an African-American church that says, only send me an African-American sales rep, we're not going to honor that. Just like we wouldn't in uh, Illinois or Colorado, if a Caucasian organization said, only send me a Caucasian representative, uh, no, we stand for good and we'll treat uh, people fairly and not deny them opportunity based on uh, prohibited factors. The other thing that we've done around uh, marketing is to come up with a marketing plan that helps us position and reinforce our wanting to have more representation and results in measurable dollars of how our diversity and inclusion efforts are also measured. And that's another thing we're really excited about because a lot of organizations don't tie their DNI efforts to the business. We hear rhetoric about uh, organizations understand it's the right thing to do, it's a business imperative. But my challenge to DNI professionals, if you can't link that to the business in a tangible way, um, you'll be less effective. But if you can tie it to actual business results, uh, revenue enhancement, uh, customer retention. Those are all very key to help people really understand and get behind your DNI initiative. So that's a, our marketing piece. Our next piece is we introduced a diversity supplier program. So this year, uh, for the first time, we have a mechanism and we partnered with an organization to help us identify and also catalog our current vendors that are owned by women, people of color, veterans, uh, differently abled, uh, LGBT. And we've set goals, again, over the next five years of improvement um, that we're gonna double in each of those categories um, over the next five years. And we recognize 
that a key component of helping build communities is supporting small businesses. And the businesses that are located in those communities also provide jobs. I think they said the average size of a small business may employ nine people. So certainly uh, we can have a competitive advantage in our building relationships and utilizing um, suppliers. So that's the fourth area. And then our fifth area is uh, community image and building relationships. We have a foundation called CM Cares. And through that foundation, we support 503C uh, organizations. And we're very proud of having a foundation that uh, we certainly partner with in terms of helping uplift all communities. So to summarize our five key areas, number one, building organizational competency. Number two, representation improvements. Number three, marketing efforts. Fourth, diverse supplier program. And five, continuing to work and uplift uh, all communities. And in order to, to, to do that, um, I'd like to articulate that there are eight steps to developing a diversity and inclusion business. First, of course, is data collection and analysis to determine the need for change for your organization. That basically says we just don't take something off the shelf and try to superimpose it on our organization. We really need to look at your workforce data, compare it to the labor market to better understand uh, the diversity of employees and the areas of concern or trends. Conducting a diversity and inclusion survey like we've done helps shed light on the perception of the company in relationship to encouraging, appreciating diversity in the workplace and identifying policies and practices that we may need to change or enhance. So the first step is data collection and analysis to determine the need for change for your organization. The second then is input from business leaders and others is design DNI business objectives with tangible metrics to align with the organization strategy. That's key. Again, because the organization must set specific goals related to diversity and inclusion based on the company's strategic objectives. It should be interwoven, not a stand -a alone. So the third area is to procure buy-in and support. Oftentimes, organizations don't have the support of the CEO. I would have never joined Church Mutual if I didn't report directly to the CEO. CEOs make things happen. There was a recent article, and I think it just came out this weekend in the Boston Globe, where um, the former CEO, I believe of John, John Hancock, indicated that um, he felt that corporations hadn't done enough to hire black employees. And he says as a CEO, one of the things that he did that he now regrets is that oftentimes leaders would come to him and say, you know, we cast a wide net, you know, we had some African-American African -American employees, but um, we really need to fill this job. And he said, okay. And uh, they filled it oftentimes with, um, a Caucasian person. He said later on, he realized that maybe he allowed his executives off the team too lightly. 
and suggested that once he changed and said to them, it's for this particular position, you will hire a person of color and they will be successful because if they're not successful, I'm gonna fire you and not them. He said things changed and, they, and, and there were more uh, people of color and African-Americans in particular who ended up as part of the workforce. So CEO support is critical, but you also have to mind the middle. And by that, I mean the middle managers and talking with them and understanding and being able to articulate radio station, WIIFM, what's in it for me, for middle managers is key because they can derail and not support. And even if you have CEO and senior level commitment, you need the middle managers on board. Uh, the next one is communicate the initiatives. And there's a number of ways in which to communicate it. At Church Mutual, our diversity and inclusion strategy is endorsed by our board of directors. Our officers and leadership team are behind it. And we have communicated it throughout the organization. We haven't shared the specific numerical goals with the workforce, but we're working on ways to provide more information about how we're doing because it's important to have a scorecard and be able to show uh, increased success. And of course, you implement the, the initiatives and build department action plans. So one of the things that we've done is each officer in our company has a diversity and inclusion plan that is linked to the overall strategy that senior management has approved and the board of directors concurs with. Uh, where responsibility for items, timeframes, and activities are identified in advance of what's important to show departmental commitment. And then of course, we need to measure and disseminate outcomes and review on an ongoing basis, what's working, what we need to adjust uh, and continue to move forward. Our journey- Hey Bruce. Is, yes. Oh, sorry, I just wanted to, I, I mean, I, Everything you, you you've said, like I, <laughs> I have truly enjoyed listening. Uh, I mean, I think, you know, everything you've talked about has been so powerful, and I really hope people come back and listen to this particular episode over and over again. Because I mean, what you're doing is truly laying out an action plan. Thank you. And I think, you know, I th I really think that's where. No, thank you. And I I really think that's where a lot of people are stuck right now is, is where did, what, what can I do? You know, it's, it's, it's got to be beyond just the performative message that companies are putting out or the hashtags, you know, what can people actually do? And so I, I, I just want to say thank you for laying that out. Um, I know we're kind of, I think at time, so what, what's, is there kind of a, a final thing you want to give us to, to maybe to, to help put a nice wrap around this? And, and again, I just encourage everybody to come back and listen to this particular episode over and over again, if you really want to figure out a way to put an action plan into place. And we're Thank probably going to have to do like a special series with Bruce every month, just because like he touched on so many things that like just oh, yeah. the surface of so yeah. many things. I'm like, okay, let's. Let's just break it down and dive deep into all the different things. Thanks. <laughs> well, 
Well, in terms of my parting comments, and I know it's, it's time-worn, but it's relevant today. One of the things I've shared with my friends is read Dr. King's letter from a Birmingham jail twice. The second piece is what can I do? As much as you have the appetite to do. And that ranges, of course, in terms of engaging in discussions, um, communicating with family, friends, colleagues, uh, protesting, funding organizations that stand to help in inequality, and that all of us continue to be open to others' pain, and let's assume positive intent and suspend judgment. That's amazing. Yeah. Thank you. Thank, thank, thank you so you. much, Bruce. Thank you for the opportunity. You made us all speechless today, Bruce, which is, is a hard thing to do for the three of us. So that is very impressive. Yeah. But Bruce, thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you to all our listeners. Um, like UB said, I think if you if this is the first time you're listening to it, just uh, come back and listen to it a couple more times because um, there's so much to unpack here. And uh, Bruce, thank you for taking the time to join us today. And we're definitely we're definitely going to be inviting you back to do some more deep dives. I hope that's okay. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Well, take care, everyone. We'll continue the Black Voices Matter series. Uh, just, just continue to stay posted on our chooseinclusion.com website. And we'll see you next time. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thanks, everybody.